Laura Rue will be our scripture reader today. Uh, she's reading from John 7. All right, our scripture reading for today is from John 7. Um, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and, the t and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Father, we receive your promise uh, over us today. Um, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And so first I pray that we would be thirsty, that we would uh, desire you, uh, we would desire grace, uh, we would desire uh, sanctification and uh, glory, renewal, all the things. Father, help us to thirst for you and with that thirst to come to you and receive the promise of living water, uh, rivers of water uh, bursting from our souls, uh, which is the Holy Spirit. Uh, Father, open our eyes and ears to this message. Um, we love you. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I need to change the settings on my uh, tablet so that it doesn't go black uh, while I pray. <laughs> um, there is not much more frustrating than being misunderstood. Have you guys ever been misunderstood? There is something about it that just hits different. If you're a parent and you're correcting your children, you can tell almost immediately when you get it wrong because of the deep uh, emotions that come back. Like kids, of course, are like defending themselves no matter what. That's what we do. Um, that's what humans do. But if you misattribute something, the look of horror on their face, right? Where I can, I can feel like immediately I know, okay, so they didn't take the last cookie because it's just the, the, it's like I killed a puppy in front of them. They're like <laughs> so sad and upset. Um, when was the last time you felt wrongfully accused of something? Uh, when was the last time someone attributed bad motives to you? I want you to remember that feeling and marvel at how Jesus is able to keep his cool throughout his ministry uh, because he is constantly being misaligned. Uh, the Savior of the world who has come to uh, heal all things and people are rejecting him constantly. Uh, now, this wasn't a surprise, uh, but it still had to be so... In John uh, 1, verse 9 through 11, uh, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and even his own people did not receive him. Uh, and sure enough, uh, as you read the book of John, this is his constant experience. 
today we are covering John chapter 7, all of it, uh, which is mostly just a string of stories, lots of people rejecting Jesus because they're confused. Uh, last week at the end of chapter 6, if you'll remember, Jesus has already lost a bunch of disciples. Uh, when he told them to eat his flesh and drink his blood, they thought that was weird and they left. Um, and there were just the 12 uh, disciples remaining. Uh, then this week's chapter opens with Jesus being disbelieved by his own brothers. So verse 1, uh, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Uh, when he appears later at the feast, there are mixed feelings in the crowd. Uh, verse 10, after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then also he went up, not publicly, but in private, and the Jews were looking for him at the feast. So Jesus is observing the crowd, and they, they see people saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet the fear of the Jews, no one, yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Uh, later, when Jesus finally shows himself for the feast, people are both impressed and disturbed by him. So in verse 15, the Jews marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never been, he has never studied? And then in verse 20, the crowd answers, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. And so just think about the, the confusion and chaos that Jesus is moving about in. Um, at the same time, though, there is this groundswell of support. Uh, building for Christ. And so in verse 30, towards the end of the chapter, the authorities were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? And so they may still misunderstand what Jesus came to do. They still are confused about it, but they're beginning to believe that this, uh, this is actually the Messiah. And that makes the Jewish authorities nervous. And so in verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. And so that sort of paints the scene of the chapter. Uh, Jesus is in a crowded temple. Uh, he's speaking to an energized crowd, uh, some believing, some unbelieving. And the Pharisees and chief priests are watching this scene from some elevated perch, and they're seeing Jesus begin to effectively turn many in the crowd to his favor, and so they dispatch guards to arrest him. And maybe Jesus sees this or overhears muttering, or you, you can just imagine like crowds trying to get and break through to Jesus. They're trying to muscle their way through to get to the crowd. And then Jesus says to the crowd, verse 33, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. So what does Jesus mean when he says this? I am going. I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. The scene, first of all, it signals that no one tells Jesus what to do. No one tells him what to do. The scene may be chaotic, but he is in control. Uh, last week, we saw how no, no crowd was going to take Jesus by force and make him king. That was uh, the uh, point of John 6. And then this week, we see how no guards are going to take him by force and make him prisoner. 
Uh, the Gospels are full of these stories of Jesus sort of slipping in and out mysteriously. They begin and end where Jesus appears all of a sudden, and then he slips away and, and can't be arrested. Uh, Jesus is very sensitive to timing. Uh, you see that throughout the book of John. Uh, he regularly talks about time and his hour. And so in John 2, uh, he tells his mother that his hour has not yet come. Uh, he tells his brothers at the opening of this chapter, my time has not yet come. Uh, and then that's how John explains how Jesus keeps avoiding arrest because of timing. They were seeking to arrest him, verse 30, but no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. He is in control. Jesus is very sensitive to time. Uh, the Jewish leaders may want to control Jesus and control the crowd, but he will not be controlled. No one tells Jesus what to do. He will die on his own terms, which is actually Jesus' primary point here. He is going to die. John 7, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. I am going. No one has authority to tell him to leave, but he is going away. He is going away, returning to the one who sent him. Uh, so much of John up to this point has been about where Jesus came from, where he is at pains to convince people that he has come from the Father, that he has been sent from heaven. And people are wrestling, like, is he from Galilee? I thought the Messiah was supposed to be from Bethlehem. Don't we know his family's from Nazareth? What good can come from Nazareth? And by this point, two years in, Jesus has been publicly performing miracles and signs, right, to prove he's sent from God and is God, saying over and over again in a hundred different ways how he is none other than the only begotten Son of God sent from the Father to save the world. And according to Jesus, it is imperative, imperative that we believe in him if we want to be saved. So Jesus is at pains to convince people where he's from. But now we learn in 733 that in just a little while, even though not all that many people believe in him, he's going to leave and go back. What gives? Right? Where are you going? Wh why now? It's, it's odd. It's frustrating even. Jesus has complete control. And if he's so sensitive to timing, why is he going away so soon? This doesn't feel like good timing. Last week, we mentioned how Jesus' ministry seems to amplify the problem of evil in many ways because we see that God is good and powerful in Jesus. Why can't he just fix all things now? This week, we are confronted by a similar problem, the problem of absence. If God is real, why is he not more obvious? If Jesus is God, why am I not convinced? If he is not, is he not able to convince me? Does he not want me to know? Couldn't he appear to me in a dream or just show up and do something big when I ask him to? And like with the problem of evil, Jesus' ministry doesn't minimize that problem. It intensifies it. Right when he seems poised to make everything right after his death and resurrection— and the, and, the, and the disciples ask, is this when you usher in the kingdom? And he says, no, I'm going to go away. He leaves. Verse 34, you will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. How is this an effective strategy for saving the world by grace through faith? 
Now, of course, Jesus has been around for two years by this point, turning water into wine, healing the sick, feeding thousands, teaching with authority, challenging the Jewish practice. No one has believed him yet. And so the question we should be asking, and that Jesus is wanting us to ask, does he really just need more time? Does he just need to do a few more signs? And then we'll believe. Or is something more required? The climax of this passage is in the next three verses. And Jesus provides the answer to all this tension. But in order for that answer to really satisfy us, uh, we need to step back and pay more attention to the setting of the scene. Uh, John chapter 7 began by telling us in verse 2 that the Jews were celebrating the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, and then it, it keeps referencing that fact. It keeps referencing the feast throughout. And then in verse 37, when there's all this tension between Jesus and the crowd and the Jewish leaders, uh, John writes, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. And so what is the Feast of Booths? Uh, the Feast of Booths, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, is one of Israel's three great annual feasts. Um, and it's called the Feast of Booths because people, for the entirety of the week, would live in tents. They would all come to Jerusalem from all over Israel, and they would live in tents or booths. Uh, living in tents was meant to remind them how their ancestors lived in tents for 40 years in the wilderness while God led them faithfully uh, into the Promised Land. Uh, Jews will still celebrate the Feast of Booths today, um, uh, and you'll sometimes see tents uh, set up outside synagogues. Uh, for the week, I don't think anyone lives in those tents uh, currently, but you'll sort of see them sprinkled around the city um, in celebrations like September, October time. Um, it's the last and greatest feast of the year. Uh, it's an eight-day feast celebrating the end of the harvest season. Uh, the grapes and olives would have just been harvested. The rainy season would be about to begin, so there would be a big shift in the year. It was a time of rest and rejoicing because you'd harvested um, you're enjoying the fruits of God's provision uh, and praying for him to do the same again next year. And so you can picture Jerusalem full of these makeshift tents in alleys and on rooftops, communities camping together for a week with food and wine every day. Uh, they, would have, they would light menorahs at the night and dance into the evening. Um, it's an amazing feast. Um, and this is the context. Uh, interestingly, it starts five days after Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Um, and the Day of Atonement is arguably the most solemn day of the year when they would make sacrifices to purify the people, priest, and the temple itself, um, purified with blood, uh, the blood of sacrifice. Uh, and then even the Day of Atonement, to get ready for that, there are 10 days of fasting. And so, man, the moment right now on day eight of the Feast of Booths, it's the culmination of all that. Um, these people, they've had this heavy week plus of fasting together. And then five days later, they all prepare and they come to Jerusalem in huge crowds and they spend another week plus feasting, celebrating God's abundant provision, past and present. In addition to just living in booths and, and partying, uh, which sounds fun, they would also read passages from the Bible. They would sing the Psalms. Um, and then pertinent to today's passage, they practice this daily water-pouring ceremony, uh, which is why Jesus brings up water here. Um, and basically, everyone would gather a, a, 
essentially a few blocks away, uh, at the pool of Siloam for a parade. And the priest would bring, gather, he would gather up some water and a pitcher, and he would also have wine as the fruit of the harvest. And they would parade and sing psalms, and they would have branches that they would be waving, uh, parade their way to the temple. And then the priest would pour water and wine at the base of the altar while the people praised God and cheered. And this was not only meant to be an expression of thanks, but also an act of prayer, like, Lord, please make it rain again. Uh, please, it's the rainy season is coming. We want it to rain again. And so you'd be praying and asking the Lord to do that. Um, and, and so that's sort of been happening, where there's just been constant feasts in Jerusalem. And this is the final day when everybody's about to go home. And, and Jesus, um, he has all this festival and ritual around him. It's the eighth day, the last day, which John says is the greatest day. And in verse 37, we read, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of water. What is he saying? He's basically repeating the challenge from last week when Jesus challenged the people to ask for more than just another round of bread. You come here year after year celebrating the harvest and asking God to do it again. But the Feast of Booths isn't just about next year. It's not just about another rainy season. It's not just about your cupboards being full. The Feast of Booths looks ahead to the final day, the last day, the great day, when the world will be completely renewed and transformed. When there will be no final harvest of the year because it will always be harvest time. This is what you see in the Old Testament in Amos 9, 13. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. Remember Jesus' line from last week, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Jesus, Jesus is beating the same drum this week. Do not march for eight days from the pool to the temple for water that doesn't last. Do not pour wine on the altar in hopes for just some more wine. God is after so much more. Jesus is after so much more. There's this amazing vision in Ezekiel 47, which is about the renewal of the temple. And the prophet has been given a tour of a renewed temple. So the beginning of Ezekiel, you, you see the, a vision of the temple in ruins. And then at the end of Ezekiel, you see a vision of the temple renewed. And after the tour, Ezekiel notices a trickle of water coming from the base of the temple. It says, then he brought, then uh, he's given, been given the tour by a bronze man. I don't even know what that means. Um, but he's <laughs> the prophet's getting a tour, um, and this bronze man is touring him around. And he brought me back to the door of the temple. And behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. And then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. They're trying to discover, where is this water going? And behold, the water 
was trickling out on the south side. And then going on eastward, they're just following this trickle. With a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a 1,000 cubits, about 500 yards. So he goes out 500 yards. And then he led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. And again, he measured another 1,000 cubits and led me through the water, and it was knee deep. Again, he measured a 1,000 and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. And again, he measured a 1,000, and it was a river that I could not pass through. For the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Ezekiel goes on to describe the diverse life that this river produces on the earth. Verse 12, on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. John will pick up this image in Revelation 22 when he sees the new heavens and the new earth. He sees a river. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each season, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Don't you long for that tree? No longer will there be any accursed, anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. This glorious future is what the Feast of Booths is about. This glorious future is what the water-pouring water ceremony was aiming at, and Jesus is standing up and crying out in John 7 that this is also why I came. And it's why I must go. Because the reality is, that's really clear when you read the Gospel of John, no one was going to really believe in Jesus until he left. They couldn't believe until he left because two things needed to happen for Ezekiel's vision to be accomplished. The temple needed to be purified of sin, and the Holy Spirit needed to be sent. Jesus told us that he was going away back to his father from whom he was sent. And we know how he's going to get there through the cross. And that's just like the Feast of Booths. It follows after the Day of Atonement. The temple will not flow again with water and wine until the temple is cleansed, until we are cleansed. And Jesus came to accomplish just that cleansing. But even that is not enough. It's not enough for Jesus to die and be raised from the dead. Michael Horton writes, Christ's work accomplished once and for all is the ground of our forgiveness, reconciliation, justification, adoption, but it cannot by itself yield repentance and faith. Apart from the new birth by the Spirit, one cannot recognize or enter the kingdom of Christ. Not even the external signs that Jesus performed as the true and faithful witness could by themselves bring about faith. And that's obvious in the story. People don't believe. Nothing can be added to Christ's person and work as the ground of redemption, and yet something further must be done. So that we, we can't do anything else. We can't add to our salvation. But we need God to do more. Something further must be done in order to bring the ungodly into a living relationship to it. 
with Christ's glorification, the gates of paradise are open wide. But if he is not to be alone in his exaltation, a head without a body, a vine without branches, the first fruits without the harvest, then the new creation must be attended by a power to raise its citizens from spiritual and physical death. And for that, we need and are given the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ sent to apply what Jesus has accomplished. This is exactly what Jesus is promising in John 7. Right after announcing his departure, Jesus looks out on this confused crowd, some half-believing, some dismissive, some angry. People want to kill him. How will I fix this? I'm going to go, and then you'll believe. John 7 again. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John adds, This he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given. Why? Because Jesus had not been glorified. Jesus has to be glorified for the Spirit to be given. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is often likened to water. Uh, In Ezekiel 36, so before the vision of rivers gushing from the temple, we read about uh, sprinkling. Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And with this in in Ezekiel 36 and then coming to the rivers uh, in the temple, it's this picture of a massive movement of the spirit. A, a movement that starts small and then grows into an un, unpassable river. It becomes a flood. In Joel 2, the prophet predicts Pentecost. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. And because God is three in one, the spirit of God is the spirit of Christ. This is why Jesus can both say that he's leaving us and that he will be with us. So his disciples are really sad in John 14 when they, it finally, they finally listen and realize that Jesus is going to leave and go. In John 14, 28, he said, You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. Now, how is that possible? How can he do both? Um, because just as the Father and Son are one, so the Son and Spirit are one. And so closely identified is the Spirit with Christ that wherever the Spirit is said to be present, Christ is present. His going is a real going, so he's a, it's a bodily departure where his body is in heaven on the throne, and his coming is a real coming through the Spirit of God. We are indwelt. Why is the switch necessary? Why not both? Um, as we... Read to th- as we sang today before the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, who lives and pleads for me. And when I despair, what do I do? I look up to heaven and know that he is there. And so it's essential that Christ in the flesh be in heaven on our behalf. 
His continued presence in heaven keeps my salvation secure and untouchable. So when he told the Pharisees, where I am going, you cannot come, that means you can't touch me. You can't mess with this. It is secure. And that's good news because when we're tempted to doubt our salvation, all we need to ask ourselves, is Jesus still on the throne? Is Jesus in the flesh with God? Does Christ, who loves me and died for me, still advocate for me? Yes, he does. Then I am safe. And at the same time, the Spirit of Christ is just as with us. He indwells us, and that makes his heavenly lordship ever-present. Jesus told his disciples, having the Spirit is even better than Christ being with them because now the Spirit of Christ is not just with them in the person of Christ, but it's actually in them. And that's a communion that he always envisioned for us. One last image, uh, why water? Uh, Why is the Spirit likened to water? In the church father, Cyril of Jerusalem, he has this wonderful passage on why water is a perfect analogy for the gift of the Spirit. He says, why did he call the grace of the Spirit water? Because by water all things subsist, all things exist, they need water. Because water brings forth grass and living things. Because the water on the rain showers comes down from heaven and the Spirit comes down. And because it comes down in one form but works in many forms. And this is beautiful. For one fountain waters the whole of paradise And one and the same rain comes down on all the world, yet it becomes white in the lily and red in the rose and purple and violets and hyacinths and different and varied in each. So it is one in the palm tree and another in the vine and all in all things, and yet it is one in nature, not diverse from itself. For the rain does not change itself. It comes down first as one thing, then as another, but adapting itself It does not change itself and come down first as one thing, then as another, but adapting itself to the constitution of each thing that receives it, it becomes to each what is suitable. This is the ministry of the Spirit to us, to each of us. And so the Holy Spirit also, being one of one nature and indivisible, distributes to each his grace as he wills. And as the dry tree, after being nourished with water, puts forth shoots, so also the soul in sin, when it has been through repentance, made worthy of the Holy Spirit, brings forth clusters of righteousness. And though he is one in nature, yet many are the virtues he brings by the will of God in the name of Christ. For he employs the tongue of one person for wisdom, the soul of another he enlightens by prophecy, to another he gives power to drive away devils, while another is given ability to interpret the scriptures. He strengthens one person's self-control, while another learns how to give to the poor. He teaches one to fast and be disciplined and another to despise the things of the body and still another he trains for martyrdom, diverse in different people, yet not diverse from himself. That's why the Holy Spirit is water. That's such a beautiful illustration because the Spirit of of God, the Holy Spirit, is himself God as the Father and Son are also God. And like water, the Spirit of God is pure. Water is water, God is God, he is unchanging, but his unchanging changes us. Like rain, the Spirit of God comes down, it finds us. When water comes down, it just, it it goes wherever. It goes to the lowest place, 
It doesn't matter how low you are. Water will find you. The Spirit of God will find you, and it will bring life. It fills us, and we become who we were made to be. This is the vision of Christ. This is why he came. I've taken too much time this morning to paint this picture. Um, It's a disorienting chapter in a lot of ways. When I first read the chapter, I honestly wanted to skip it. (laughs) Um, But obviously I didn't. Um, And as, as a preacher, you're always wondering, is this too much? Have I moved from preaching to lecturing? Um, and lecturing is really enjoyable for some people. It's not enjoyable for other people. Um, it's life-changing for no one. So how can this be life-changing? And to be very clear, this background isn't necessary. The scripture is powerful with or without background. If it's just you and the Bible, that's plenty. God's got you. Because the Bible is the inspired word of God, written in such a way that Jesus promised to satisfy thirst should resonate. It's meaningful and compelling. And on top of that, in addition to the Bible's inspiration, we believe in the Spirit's illumination, that the Spirit is active in us, and he can open our eyes to the truth, with or without background. But for me, it often takes wrestling with the confusion of John 7, the tension and irritation, fighting for clarity to really hear what Jesus has to say. And reading John 7 with this knowledge coupled with our imagination, picturing this feast and how all of redemptive history was leading to this moment when Jesus, at the perfect time, stood up and cried out. It reminds me that apart from Christ, I live in such a bland world. A bland world that has forgotten how to thirst like this. So that when Jesus cries, if anyone thirsts, I'm not sure if I thirst. I don't know that I would take him up on that offer. There are crickets in my heart. In this room, without the Spirit, there might not be any takers. Does anyone thirst? And we just don't have annual rituals like the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Booths, which stir up in us this insatiable thirst that God only can satisfy. And part of the Bible's work, the Spirit's work through the Bible, is to make us thirsty again with its crazy visions of sprinkled hearts, a poured-out Spirit, trickling water from the temple, which grows and grows until it becomes a river so vast and deep that you can't swim across it, a flooding of the earth that doesn't destroy like Noah's flood, which was such a tragedy, but flooding which saves people from every tribe, tongue, and nation— the ministry of Jesus, the tension of Jesus with the problem of evil and the problem of absence, it's meant to frustrate us such that we refuse to settle for food which isn't food, to pray for just another rainy season. We want more from God than that. Why does God not just show himself right now? Because Jesus doesn't just want us to know that he's God. Even the demons know. Jesus doesn't just want us to offer our assent to Christian doctrine and ethics to say he's right and everyone else is wrong. That would not be satisfying to God. It would not give him delight. No one has to die for that. God could make all of us believe easy. 
But he doesn't just want us to believe. He wants us to thirst. He wants us to live forever. To flourish forever. He wants us to yearn, to delight, to love, to grow, to trust, to believe with every fiber of our being. It is why he's given us imagination. It is why he has given us this world. It's why he's given us the scriptures. Do you want what Jesus is offering? Living water, which becomes in us a spring welling up to eternal life. Rivers of water flowing out of our hearts, bringing food and healing, not just to us, but to the nations. Just as nothing living can survive without water, so too nothing survives without the Holy Spirit. You can't, I can't, our church can't. Our city cannot survive without the Holy Spirit. As long as it is cut off from Jesus, it will die. The forests can't survive without the work of the Holy Spirit. The oceans, the stars, truth, beauty, love cannot survive. Nothing survives without the Holy Spirit. Jesus knew this, which is why he came, to give us his spirit by dying in our place. The Gospel of John is the only gospel which records two little details at Jesus' crucifixion. John 19, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus on the cross became thirsty so that he could give to all who thirst water, which is his spirit. And a few verses later, when the soldiers pierced Christ's side with a spear to make sure he died, there's another John-only detail. Verse 34, at once there came out blood and water. Blood and water. Christ's death is both the sacrifice for sins, which purifies the temple, and it's the source of the spirit. With his blood, Jesus purchases forgiveness for us, purifying the temple once and for all. And from his side trickles the water that will become a river, cleansing and healing and nourishing all of creation. Does anyone thirst? Do I thirst? Come to Jesus and drink. Come to the cross. Drink from his grace. Believe so that out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are so thankful for your commitment to press through humanity's unbelief, uh, our confusion, our frustration. that we did not have to believe you before you would die for us. That we didn't have to prove ourselves before you would do these things, but you went ahead and you knew that the only way they will believe is if I die. And if I ascend to heaven and pour out my spirit. Thank you for this vision. I pray that you would send your spirit on each of us and on all of us together, a spirit which both 
magnifies our thirst for you and quenches it. We need both. Uh, Would you bless us with uh, your spirit this morning? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.